The world lost a great friend and advocate recently. In late May, Emily Ugarenko died tragically in a house fire. For many years, Emily had been an outspoken advocate for dogs, stood against breed-specific legislation in Ontario, and changed the lives of hundreds of families through her tireless efforts to rehome and rescue bully breed dogs. I am proud to have known her, worked with the rescue she co-founded, and I would like to dedicate this episode to her memory. This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's June 23rd, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 326 of Defender Radio. From Stubby, the highly decorated canine soldier in World War I, to Pete the Pup, who tagged along with the little rascals on their adventures. Bully breed dogs were once considered loyal friends and family pets. But due to media sensationalism, reactionary politics, and crippling biases, they are being outlawed and ostracized. Recently, communities within Quebec and La Belle Province itself have proposed numerous actions they say will protect citizens from dangerous dogs. But most of these actions are simply breed-specific legislation. Defender Radio was today joined by two special guests, Anita Kupasinka of the Montreal SPCA to speak about legislation in Quebec, and Dr. Karen Overall, a veterinary specialist and researcher to discuss the myths and facts about dogs and pit bull-like dogs around the world. So let's get started with Anita. Can you start out and just sort of explain why is Quebec and, and the city of Quebec City and some of the other uh, uh, municipalities looking at breed-specific legislation, specifically surrounding pit bulls and pit bull-type dogs? Well, there was a very uh, recent horrific uh, incident uh, that included a, a death of a woman that was supposedly killed by a pit bull-type dog. So there is definitely um, a lot of worry going around and uh Unfortunately, uh, this incident has created a lot of um, hysteria, um, and uh, rightfully so. We need to find a way to keep society safe uh, from dangerous dog bites. Um, and uh, un unfortunately, there is, of course, a lot of people um, who are proposing um, breed bans as the solution, which we do not believe and we know for a fact is not the way to go about keeping society safe. Well, and that's one of the big things that I, I hear come up um, is is the concept of the false sense of safety, that because a breed ban's in place and quote-unquote dangerous dogs are no longer around, people relax themselves unnecessarily or maybe even put themselves into potentially dangerous situations. Absolutely, and that is exactly the way, what you described is exactly the way we see it, and uh, experts uh, all around the world agree on this too. It's a knee-jerk reaction to a problem that's much better addressed by aggressive dog ordinances. There's uh, any dog can become dangerous. Um, certain people shouldn't have dogs, period, um, and any dog can become potentially dangerous if the dog is in the wrong environment, uh, if he's maybe tethered. Uh, or um, unsterilized. These are all things that we know for a fact could lead to dangerous dog behavior rather than the breed or the physical appearance of an animal. Well, and you know, something I talk about, uh, and as you know, I am a dog person, um, 
and my uh, my fiance is a trainer and involved in agility and sport and everything. Um, so we're we're constantly surrounded by dog people and dog things. But something I'll, I'll frequently talk about on these occasions is the dog I had as a child uh, was a golden retriever from a at the time seemed to be a reputable breeder. Now looking back, was a bit backyardish. Um, and this dog was uh, a healthy young male. Uh, very handsome boy and well-behaved most of the time, but he would get, you know, he'd get kind of possessive over things and nip at people. So, you know, he had bitten my dad and my sister, um, never bit me. And then one night he was coming inside from the backyard and had a stone in his mouth. And my mom went to take the stone from him and she ended up with over a hundred stitches in her hand. Um, and at the lovely age of 11, that was the first time I ever saw human flesh. Mind you. Um, but this was a golden retriever, you know, the family dog. And it turned out that he had a, a tumor that was pressing on the amygdala, which caused this just rapid, uh, without cause aggression. And it's not something anyone could have predicted or seen coming. But that's a statistic that like all of that background information won't show up when we talk about this. If we look at this from a statistical point of view, all you see is male dog attack causing severe damage. Um, and I, is that one of the biggest problems that we, we, we don't have the right information? Absolutely. And one, a couple things that you brought up with that story of the goal of your golden, um, is very interesting because what we see in the media, when a, when a golden retriever bites, we don't hear about it. No one talks about it. A couple of years ago, uh, a baby died due to a husky attack and right away the parent was blamed and we weren't even looking at, um, at why at the breed, it was a husky, and this time we this time we had a horrific incident. And I'm not in any way trying to take away from uh, the tragedy that evolved around this incident, but this time it was a pitbull type dog. And now we're all talking only about the pitbull type dog. But if this were a golden, I'm not sure we'd be having the same conversation. Um, and you're absolutely right. There are many w- reasons why animals may bite, and we don't always know uh, statistically why an animal will bite. But we do believe that we need to work on adopting preventative measures to helping ensure that animals don't become dangerous in one situation or another. So something like sterilization, making sure that we're addressing also backyard breeders. Right now, Anybody who's anyone can breed an animal and then sell it to anybody. And that is a huge problem in, that we see in Montreal and in Quebec. Uh, if you go on Kijiji, you'll find so many um, situations where you're able to purchase dogs at extremely young ages. Um, just this month, we received two puppies that were surrendered to us from different situations that were bought online at the age of four weeks old. Uh, and this is an issue. I mean, if you're not, if anyone is breeding dogs and they're not socializing them properly and then they're giving these animals or selling these animals to Joe Blow without having any kind of screening process, we shouldn't be surprised that we're having issues with dangerous dogs. Well, and I think that's um, something that we, we, I, I don't know that we are good at doing as a society is understanding that Long before we should be looking at any kind of breed-specific legislation, we need to look at general legislation. And Quebec is uh, unfortunately often referred to as the backyard breeding capital of Canada. Um, Like, does the SPCA have in mind certain types of legislation that you believe should be put forward uh, relating to backyard breeding to protect 
uh, both, both dogs and people. Absolutely. And we have to always remember that we are all on the same page, whether someone is pro-pit or is not, is against uh, people type dogs in society, we all have a common goal in mind, which is how do we need, we need to address public safety. We want to make sure that society is safe. And this is the main focus that we should all be focusing on. And we can't take away from that because we need to find the way that is the best, we need to find what the best solution is in order to address this issue. Some people might suggest breed bans, which we have seen is not uh, proven to work. It's actually uh, something that does not work. There are even 20 states that deem it illegal to adopt uh, breed-specific bounds. Um, there are other legislations that can be put in place which have proven to be successful, which we should be focusing on. So the problem at hand, we are all on the same page. We need to find a way to keep society safe and prevent dog bites from happening, period. And then we need to start addressing how we need to go about this. And like we said earlier, pitbull-type dogs do not bite because of the shape of their head or because of their DNA. Um, People type any dog can potentially become aggressive, and we need to address the root causes of these aggressions. I don't know if you saw this. This this got posted on uh, June twenty first in the Brampton Guardian. Uh, Brampton's a relatively large city in Ontario, outside of Toronto, mm-hmm. and the OSPCA says this is just the lead from the article. Says the death of a cane corso found beaten to death in Brampton last month, along with a string of puppy thefts in the area, could be evidence of a dog fighting ring in Peel region. Now. Ontario has had breed-specific legislation since 2005. I, I spoke um, extensively when I was in the media about this, and I also uh, was called to testify at a legislative committee on a bill that would amend the Dog Owner Liability Act uh, in 2008. Um, and... Yet we're still seeing this. We're still seeing these large dogs being taken advantage of. We're still seeing them being used in fighting rings. And all of this was supposed to have stopped as a result of Mm breed-specific legislation. So is this just sort of more evidence of of the failure of this type of policy? Absolutely. I mean, when there is breed-specific legislation in place, people will simply not register their dogs. They won't take their dogs to the vets as often because they're hiding them. Um, and uh, they might keep them in their backyards more as opposed to walk them and giving them proper exercise and proper care. So you might, you often see uh, an increase in um, in dog-related issues. And you'll simply not be able to find necessarily the statistics to support what's happening because people are not registering their animals, they're hiding them, they're not taking them to the vets as often. And this is definitely not something uh, that is uh, proactive in dealing with an existing situation. Now, luckily in Quebec, we don't have an issue with uh, dog fighting rings. But we also don't have a breed ban yet. Um, hopefully we won't have one. But like you say, and that's something that I find extremely interesting to be looking at as well, is that in Ontario you do have a breed ban and yet you do still have an issue with dog fighting and you still have um, a lot of dog bites going on. From what I've seen, there hasn't been much of a change. Yeah, Toronto Humane Society has shown time and time again that bites have actually increased since the uh, the BSL went into place. Um, now, I, there, there's one other thing I wanted to ask you specifically about. In the city of Sherbrooke, um, there, there's, and this, this it's frustrating, but it's also sadly funny. Um, they have put in place uh, new measures to protect Sherbrooke residents while Quebec considers banning pit bulls. Um, mm-hmm. Any dog heavier than 20 kilograms or 44 pounds will now have to wear a halter when it is not on private property. 
and any apartment dog must wear a leash as soon as it leaves its apartment. So, a, mm-hmm. a halter is like a, a, a just like it, a gentle yeah a gentle leader a halty. There's various forms of them. What what do they expect to happen as a result of this? I like. I don't understand what they are see- like. Do they like these aren't muzzles? These are not going to prevent a dog from biting, and even a large dog. I mean, it's if a dog wants to go, yes, this can help, but it'll still go. So, like, is this just acting for the sake of acting? I believe that it's an interesting thing to be looking at as an option. Um, there are some municipalities that are looking at muzzling, which we we don't think is the right way to go about. What I do like uh, about what Sherbrooke is proposing is that they're not looking at something that's breed specific. They're targeting dogs over a certain weight. So regardless if you're looking at a golden retriever, um, uh, a Great Dane, uh, a Pipple type dog, they're all in the same category, which I think is already better than a breed specific uh, legislation. And uh, the idea of a, of a gentle leader, uh, what you, you said is absolutely correct. But it does give more control to um, the owner uh, when they're walking their dog on the street. So it can create more control over their pet, which is interesting. Um, you're right. It doesn't prevent an actual dog bite from happening, but it does give more control to the owner. So uh, more control is also a good thing over your pet. So I don't think that's something that uh, is necessarily negative. I think it's something that's very interesting and something that we're looking at as well. Um, we do not believe that a specific breed should be targeted to wear a gentle leader. So I think it's kind of interesting the way that they're going about it. Um, definitely a lot more interesting than what Montreal is proposing which is a, a muzzle and a complete ban. Yeah, and then it's uh, Quebec City. They're talking about uh, six months and you're out pretty much, right? Yeah, uh, they're... They seem to be a bit more open to discussion right now, and they seem to be wanting to include a grandfather clause. Um, but uh, all of this is still up in the air, and um, what's, what's happening right now is that the mis- every municipality, every bureau is relooking at their regulation, and then all the cities are relooking at their re- re- regulations as well. And the province itself is also considering a, a pitbull type ban. So it's um, it's a very difficult situation because there's a lot of hysteria going around. A lot of people are calling us to, uh, for help. Um, a lot of people who have pitbull type dogs or not even pitbull type dogs are getting harassed by, by a lot of people on the street, um, not because of their dog's behavior, but because of their dog's appearance. And this has caused generalized fear in everybody. And it's, 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 a, it's not a good time, let's put it that way, and we definitely want to be bringing out more information. We're working on a, on a microsite right now, a campaign that we're going to be launching very quick soon with, that's going to include a lot of information about what is the right solution to tackle dangerous dog aggression and uh, why breed-specific legislation is not part of the answer. And, of course, most importantly, what should be done, what kind of legislation needs to be applied in order to keep society safe. Terrific. Um, uh, and for the folks who do want to get involved in this, and of course, um, you know, we, we at the Fur Bears, although dogs are not technically a fur bear, they are a fur-bearing animal, and this kind of legislation to us very much reflects on the media sensationalism of many animals and the way the government reacts and the, the policy that gets put in place that just seems counter counteractive almost, counterintuitive to the problem. And again, the problem is that there are dog bites uh, which are happening because of things people are doing. Um, and it's the same way we say, you know, there might be uh, bears ransacking someone's backyard, but it's because of the way people are acting. Um, 
So when people want to get involved, when they want to sort of say in their neighborhood, in their community, in their municipality, in their province, this is not good enough. What should they be doing? What does the Montreal SPCA want them to do? Well, first of all, if you have a dog, make sure that you're showing the positive image of a responsible dog owner. Um, make sure that, you know, your animal is sterilized. Um, if your animal is showing any type of aggressive behavior, um, address right away with a positive reinforcement trainer. Speak to your vet about it right away. Make sure that you deal with that situation. Um, and speak to people. Talk to people. Uh, let people know that... Uh, Breed-specific legislation simply doesn't work. And uh, in the coming days, uh, we invite everyone to visit our website, uh, spca.com, where there will be a link to a microsite about actions that people can take in order to help um, make breed bands history. To learn more about what the Montreal SPCA is doing to protect dogs from breed-specific legislation and how you can get involved, visit spca.com. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. You're listening to Defender Radio. First, they tear a hole in your roof. Then they get in, destroying your insulation, chewing your electrical wiring. Raccoons and squirrels are eating away at your biggest investment, your home. I am Brad Gates of Gates Wildlife Control. Don't wait any longer. Call Gates Wildlife Control. We'll humanely get them out and keep them out. We will come to your house and provide you with a no-obligation free estimate. Please visit us at gateswildlifecontrol.com or call 416-750-9453. After a night out with your friends, there are always options for getting home safely. You could call your BFF, take a cab, or maybe you'll grab the last bus. Now there's a smartphone app to help you choose your ride, Find out more at arrivealive.org. This is Defender Radio. We're back with more about the BS in BSL. We were joined today by Dr. Karen Overall, a world-renowned veterinary specialist and researcher. And I, I think maybe to start out, can you explain what makes you kind of, I, I mean, I read that you were involved in a couple of high-profile uh, uh, reviews of read specific legislation. Could you explain your background and why you are very much an expert on this kind of subject matter? Well, I'm a veterinarian who's a specialist. So I'm a specialist in veterinary behavioral medicine, which just means that I'm a diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Behavior. I've been doing this for about 25 years. I have a PhD in uh, zoology and evolutionary biology, where I minored in molecular genetics. I have a master's degree in ethology, so I'm broadly trained to evaluate behavioral issues. And the focus of much of my research has been anxiety disorders and related concerns, including aggression in dogs. And I've published uh, a number of scholarly papers on canine aggression and reviewing the uh, dog bite data that have been published in a statistical manner. So in other words, plowing through all of the data that existed and looking for um, associations that make 
scientific sense and that are statistically significant. And and some of those papers are among the most widely cited papers in the field. So I'm sure that that's uh, that those criteria together um, make a difference. And it I think. Um, my textbooks are also among the most widely used worldwide. And I, I think that that academic background, you know, that academic approach to stuff, I, I don't really have a dog in the fight, so to speak. You know, it, to me, it's the science. Well, and all of that information is very impressive, but I can use Google. So I feel like we're on equal playing ground here. Um, well, you can certainly read what I wrote. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, 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 I went to community college, but um, let's just move forward, gloss over that. Uh, so, I mean, it, it is fair to say you are one of the top experts on this matter in the world. And in one sentence, what is your opinion of breed-specific legislation? I just kind of want to get that out of the way. Yeah, um, I don't support breed-specific legislation at all. And not only that... I um I think breed specific legislation is both inhumane to the dogs and the people affected um and I think it's dangerous because it gives you the illusion that you've done something that will make you safe when the data show that you've done no such thing and the final reason I dislike it um, and don't support it is because um, it's a political argument, not a scientific one. And there have never been any data nor any analysis done by anyone competent that has actually supported um, short or long-term effects when the limitations of the population in the analysis are considered. And it's, uh, it's racism. Yeah, that's, that's a common argument that we hear is it's, it's founded on the very same thing, uh, making a presumption about an individual based on a genetic past. Yeah, or what they look like. You may not even know their genetic past. And this is a particular problem with the pit bull debate because the tendency is to label anything that's muscular is a pit bull. And when um, a study by Voith et al. looked at the wisdom analysis, the wisdom panel is Mars's panel, where they statistically determine the probability of a breed representation within a sample. Um, American pit bull terriers weren't actually in the breeds that people commonly identify as pit bulls. So this is a this is a real problem. You know, this is like the way the United States used to determine whether or not you were you were black or African American. You know, how much how much Negro blood did you have? Um, this is a concern. And when you consider that we're talking today, when the British are deciding whether they're gonna exit the EU. <sighs> The things that unite all of us are, should be so much greater than the things that separate us. And the data for dogs strongly suggests that's the case. And if we think we're going to um, cosmetize risks of dog bites by banning a breed, sounds good, but it's not competent. 
Now, there is one study, and this is one that I've seen come up, uh, and, and I don't remember the name of the author, but it was based on the Manitoba uh, numbers. That's yeah, it's the Manitoba Winnipeg study, and it they claim a breed specific effect. Um, they claim a short term effect of breed specific legislation, except they have serious problems in the way they've done their population dynamics. And if you know, if we go back and and look at that study, and there are some other studies like that. There are some studies um, out of parts of Europe that have done similar things. The problem is they've made serious methodological errors in the way they, they've looked at these populations and the effect of the population. And the biggest problem that we uh, sit with is that we don't actually collect the same data across all breeds of all dogs for all dogs. You know, if this were Norway or Sweden, we could tell you what the risk is for dogs because every dog is registered. You know, we could tell you how many of each breed there were. Um, the Swedes could tell you an awful lot about the genetics of them. But we don't do those things. So what you get and many of these studies make these these mistakes. And I've written extensively about some of the pitfalls in that particular study um, at the methodological and technical level. But what you tend to get is you get overrepresentation of rare cases. And if you use media reports, um, it's very clear that there's a breed bias in the media. In other words, it's the same thing that goes on in all the news spectacular scary things get a lot of attention and when um it's the neighbor's golden retriever that for example kills three dogs in the neighborhood that doesn't make the press but something that someone perceives is some type of mastiff breed kills one dog in the neighborhood suddenly that individual is perceived to be a risk to everybody so We've got serious problems with the way many of these data are collected, which is why in 2013, Gary Petronic at Tufts wrote a paper called The Number Needed to Ban. In other words, he took on these issues and he said, what methodological and statistical concerns have to be met before you could ban a breed? on a scientific basis and no study meets that standard well I, I, how advanced is that? i mean what if if we were to say we want to find out should we be doing this how involved do we have to get i mean how much time and money and resource do we have to throw at that to be able to come up with reliable statistical information and, and this is the question you know and most countries have decided that rather than run um complete dog registries, which in many cases are better than some human registries, you know, and if you've already got a, a, a dog organization like exists in Norway or Sweden up and running, it's no problem because people just register, they do it. They just register their dogs. You know, you know, the breed or the age of the dog, they get a license, they get a microchip. This is terrific. We know who the dog is. 
And people are responsible about that. Well, to get something like that started, the inertia for something like that, even in a country with a population the size of Canada's, is is going to be expensive. Um, but not as expensive in many ways if kennel clubs and dog breed clubs are involved and they see positive benefits to learning about the population as is the legislative effort for misinformation. Um, people don't see how much actually goes into establishing these bands and setting them up to get no benefit. And the thing that I think as a specialist in veterinary behavioral medicine that bothers me is I see huge numbers of dogs that are mastiff breeds coming in because they're afraid of storms, they can't be left alone. Um, I don't tend to see very many of them for aggression because people are, first of all, very aware that if they're taking on a breed that no one's going to give a second look at if the dog is nasty, that they work quite hard at it, and actually the vast majority of them are very nice. Whereas I see an awful lot of dogs of breeds that people do not think would be nasty, who are truly pathologically aggressive and potentially dangerous. And part of the problem is we don't do a good job of assaying who's at risk and who's not, and veterinarians don't have the training to assay who's at risk or not throughout the animal's life. You know, Canada suffers from the same problem the U.S. and Australia and Europe suffers from, and that's that there is a paucity of specialists in the field, and most of your veterinary schools don't have specialists in behavioral medicine. So the people training the veterinarians are not specialists in behavioral medicine, yet behavior problems will affect more animals than all other medical problems combined, and they still annually kill more animals than all other medical problems combined. So when we talk about care for dogs, veterinarians aren't trained to start assessing that dog from the first time they see it. It doesn't matter whether it's a four-year-old rescue or a two-month-old puppy to ask the same set of questions every single time they see that dog so that they can begin to assess, is this dog going down a risky pathway because he's becoming pathological? Is he going down a risky pathway because his people are irresponsible or not knowledgeable? Which happens. Is he going down a risky pathway because his people are deliberately doing this? We see this in urban areas in U.S. cities like Philadelphia. People will encourage inappropriate or pathological aggression, um, not because they want their dog to kill somebody deliberately, but because they think a dog who is aggressive for any reason will keep their family safe in a risky setting. That's a misapprehension. Those dogs tend to bite family members or friends or other people. And anybody who has ever dealt with working dogs will tell you that if you need a good police dog, you need a dog who is better than average. 
you know, and and that's very different than the dog who will grumble at everybody, but now you go to pull him away from your friend and he bites you. So the the misapprehension that aggression can be good because it will keep you safe puts an awful lot of dogs in the population that shouldn't be there. And nobody recognizes those things because these dogs are not seen early. Well, and that's... I. Uh... You know, this to me is the same way I look at uh, uh, mental health issues, something I'm very passionate about outside of animals um, and general practice doctors, family doctors, who are typically the ones who are going to be prescribing all kinds of medication, but don't have that training. They're not psychiatrists or not therapists. So is it is that kind of a familiar comparison then to say, like, as a veterinarian, you uh, uh, and to general vets, uh, small animal veterinarians need to either identify that you are not an expert and refer or find a way to get yourself the training so you can specialize to a degree in these issues. Yeah, and that's the the analogy is perfect and the idea for the training is perfect. You know, we're trying to promote the idea that everybody now routinely screens patients, cat or dog, um, because cats can seriously injure and kill people too. It doesn't happen very often, but it has happened. Um, but that they seriously screen these individuals just for welfare reasons. You know, you would like any animals with whom you live to have the best life possible. So we should be screening these, these individuals so that we pick up problems early on. Um, instead, people tolerate problems or they don't know that there are problems or they think it's normal. Or they've been taught by somebody with no training, and there, God knows there are uh, TV trainers who have no formal training, no education in learning theory, no idea of pathology, doing absolutely ridiculous things to animals on TV, and being bitten for doing it, and thinking that that's perfectly acceptable. And people model their behaviors on this level of ignorance, and it's not acceptable. And the only way we can fix that is the, exactly the way you said that the psychiatrists are looking to fix it, to get in there with more data, more evidence-based medicine to show people that this is how this works and that veterinarians or general practitioners or internal medicine specialists or pediatricians can begin to assay for these things the same way we're encouraging people to do it in veterinary medicine. It just unfortunately isn't happening. And and veterinarians uh, who specialize are probably all pretty overwhelmed with people wanting appointments, but veterinary schools have cut back on the number of full-time faculty positions in veterinary behavioral medicine in the past uh, 25 years. In fact, since I started in this field academically, the, um, the number of positions at veterinary schools has dropped by two-thirds, and the number of research positions has really dropped. And without research, you don't have modern knowledge. You know, without somebody who can say, I'm sorry, your methodology is flawed here, or here's the way we ask this question, um, you're not going to get answers that are helpful to you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of frightening to sort of realize the, that the volume of the issue. And I, I think maybe we can close off the BSL section of this by summarizing that a world-leading expert in veterinary behavior and medicine who has done numerous studies and read all of the available literature says that 
any evidence or quote-unquote evidence that does exist that would support BSL is methodologically flawed or it simply doesn't exist. Yeah, or the numbers don't exist to support it. In other words, we the data are so incomplete that you're cherry-picking cherry picking your results. And the sad thing is that then people, and this is important because this is where the risk is lays there. Um, we have a death, and deaths are always tragic. Please don't misunderstand. Maulings are always tragic. They ban the breed, and they don't realize that any inappropriately behaved dog could do that type of damage. Large dogs tend to do proportionately more damage. And there are dogs at risk out there every single day that because they're not a targeted breed, people think will not do them harm. And those are the dogs doing harm. Yeah, and that's... uh I mean, that's, uh, there's multiple issues within issues on that. Um, but I, I think what would be interesting, if you agree, is to do some of the fun question and answer I got on Facebook. Um, so I said, I'm talking with an expert. What do you want to know about pit bulls? And Facebook kind of blew up. Um, <laughs> so, no, and, and to be fair, I've been reading comments on Facebook. Uh, that's part of my job, and it's horribly depressing. So I asked all of my dog friends, you know, what are some of the common myths you hear about pit bulls that need to be talked about? And they, they literally lost their minds. And I think the very first one, and I saw this come up even in a scientific forum, was the concept of locking or a latching jaw pattern of, of some dogs. Um, and the variations on this are locking or latching or just extremely high PSI. So is there, is it true that some breeds of dogs, pit bull type dogs or mastiff breed dogs have a latching jaw pattern, locking jaw or abnormally high PSI strength in their jaw? Okay. The latching locking dog pattern is a different question than the pressure pattern. Um, the latching locking jaw issue is completely fallacious. Um, Dogs aren't reptiles. They haven't been reptiles for a very long time. Uh, there is no canine anatomy that does that. Okay, so that's just a myth. Um, the amount of pressure you exert for pit bulls has been grossly exaggerated on all fronts. Um, even when it's measured correctly, which is almost never done, um, the amount of pressure way that's reported way exceeds what dog jaws uh, can sustain. Now, that said, the issue here that does matter, and it's not a pit bull issue, it's a dog issue. And this is always the thing I say to my clients. Force equals mass times acceleration. This is, this is a, a tenet of physics. And the bigger the dog, even if the bite's accidental, the more damage you're going to do. So the bigger the dog, the bigger the head, the bigger the teeth, the bigger the jaws, the more damage you're going to do. And if that dog is moving or the human is moving, which is often the problem with children, kids are in motion, the more damage you're going to do. And by the way, it could be in completely innocent play. 
Yeah, and that's uh, the analogy I make of that is I'm uh, you know I'm I'm around six feet, two hundred and forty pounds. If and I am extremely non-violent. I'm one of those people. <laughs> but if someone, if I'm walking through the mall and bump into someone smaller than me, they're going to spin around and possibly fall. Right. And it doesn't matter that I intended to, that I tried to avoid it, that it was accidental. It's the the pure physics of the matter is I am a much larger person. Right. And this is one of the the things that people talk about when they note it, when there have been a number of questionnaire studies that have looked at how reactive small versus big dogs are. And big dogs um, don't seem to bark and growl as much as little dogs do. Well, who knows if people just tolerate that in little dogs because they don't perceive that they're going to do a lot of damage even if they bite. Well, that's an unfortunate set of circumstances because by the time little dogs bite, little dogs tend to be held up by people's faces where they can actually do quite a bit of damage. So little dog bites tend to be delivered towards hands or faces. Um, The average dog doesn't usually deliver a bite to a face unless it's a child and then it delivers the bite to the face because that's the level of their head. And then when we're talking about the number of attacks, and again, this is something that comes up, and I, I follow this matter closely. I was I was in the media for over 10 years as a, a news reporter, and I question this. So they say there are more pit bull attacks. And I know there's been CDC statistics that show this and so on, but is so when someone says there are more aggressive or more maulings, so significant attacks by pit bulls than other breeds of dogs, could that be a reporting bias? It is a reporting bias because we, those, and, and Gary Petronic again did a fabulous job in another paper on this where he actually looked at the media bias. And, you know, if you're going to use newspapers, I can tell you I've had golden retrievers who have sent people, not my personal dogs, patients who have sent people to the hospital and have killed other dogs. They've never made it into the papers. But if there's a glint that it's a pit bull, it shows up. So if you search dog bites, you get the breed bias. The other thing is that that breed may be inaccurate. So not only do you have the bias going one way where you're only going to report on breeds that you perceive to be pit bulls, if you were now to ask, okay, let's just assume that all of those, this is Let's assume this is the truth. It's not because you've missed every single other dog that has sent somebody to the hospital. But even if it were true, are all of those truly pit bulls? The data suggests that 90% of those dogs are misidentified. Well, and how do we how do we approach that? Now, this this I'm asking more as an advocate. And this I had a couple of people ask about this is how are they identifying pit bulls? And I know in Ontario our legislation is any dog that shares traits or is pit bull like. Yeah, that's how that's how most people do it. You know, in the UK, they tell you right out on their websites that we don't judge your dog by his behavior. We judge him by what it looks like. So, uh, uh, yeah, from a, I, and I don't even know how to ask the question because it simply like astounds me. But from a scientific sort of point of view, is it possible to say just from a visual sighting? So looking at a dog from across the room as someone with your level of expertise to know the breed or even breed type of any dog. 
with 100% accuracy? Um, no. And I have to tell you that when somebody says to me, what do you think he is for these mixed breeds? I, um, I always say, I never have any idea. If I had to make a guess, I would say X, Y, and Z, and I'm probably wrong. And I always add, because the data show that whenever anybody tries to do this, 90% of the time they're wrong. Because they just don't look things a sort differently. You know, I have, I have rescue Australian shepherds. And people are stunned by how I can have four dogs that are one breed that look so different from each other. Because it's a working breed. You know, it's like border collies who work on farms. They don't look like the border collies that are, that are show border collies. Um, so there's a lot of innate variability in dogs anyway. And you occasionally get really not true to form looking dogs in a breed. And the people can produce the DNA. They can produce the pedigree. And you can look at that dog and you can say to them, is that really a corgi? And they'll say, yes, he's really a corgi. And he just doesn't look like one. Well, I, and it, that's something I, I uh, my fiance is involved in uh, dog performance and dog sport and stuff like that. And I, I constantly tease people, tease her friends, who, who many of whom are my friends as well, that all the border collies look the same. Uh, which, of course, sends them driving mad, oh, A, yeah. because they're dog people and B, because they're border collie people. But mm -hmm. there is such a, a huge range in shape and size and coloration. Yep. We have a two-fold difference in size in Australian Shepherds in my household. And there isn't a miniature Aussie in the group. I've got one that weighs 90 pounds and is thin. You know, and I've got 240 to 50 pound Aussies and two 70 to 90 pound Aussies. You know, it's just there's that much variability within known breeds. Geneticists who breed for things in colonies have written books about the amount of what's called phenotypic variation in coat color. And we know the genes that are involved to make a short coat or a dark coat or a blue diluent or a brown diluent or a red dog or a chocolate dog. You know, those data exist and they make life extremely complex for people who want to say, well, you're not allowed to do that because you've clearly got too great a percentage of Negro blood or pit bull blood. There is no difference here. Well, what about the, the DNA? And this is something uh, uh, someone I know talked to me a bit about and it went way over my head, but more or less my understanding from what I was told is that even with DNA profiling, the accuracy, uh, as soon as you have, I, and I can't remember the right terminology, but like one generation somewhere in the lineage outside of the breed. That's right. Right. So the, the wisdom panel, which is, as I said, the Mars panel, which is the, um, the best, probably, it's certainly the commercial panel that has been used most often. And that becomes important because the more you do these types of genetics, they inform the probabilistic decisions. You'll remember that I said it gives you a probability that certain breeds are involved. They estimate that with a first generation cross, so let's say that um, I'm taking a German Shepherd, a breed that everybody will know what it looks like, 
and I'm breeding it to a dachshund, okay? And a breed everybody knows what it looks like. So we know that that shepherd is a shepherd because we've looked at its DNA and it falls within that group of, of shepherd genes and we've got pedigrees and we can do the same thing with the dachshund. For that first generation cross, which is what that would be called, the F1 generation, the first progeny generation, the wisdom panel has been said to be 88 to 90% reliable and accurate. And each generation removed, you may lose some of that accuracy. Um, But what they are doing is we continually improve the knowledge of the canine genome. And there are, there's a new genetic technology out there called next generation sequencing that is going to tell us a lot about the variations um, that are too fine for us to detect and now in the DNA chips that are commonly being used. And as we get better with that technology, the probabilistic arguments should get better because people will recognize sequences of DNA that are more frequently than not carried along with certain groups of dogs. Now, the problem is they're often carried along with task more than breed, and some genes are carried along with breed more than condition. And we're still sorting that out, which is why these panels give you a probability. So they'll give you, they'll look at the sequence, they'll look at the genetic sequence, and they'll say, you know, you have these sequences, and these we commonly see in Salukis, and you have these sequences, the next most common group of sequences you have are sequences we commonly see in bulldogs, and then the la- the third most common set of sequences that you have, we commonly see in papillons, okay? And so why your dog looks like a Labrador cross is anybody's guess. And that's what happens. Because God knows you've got all the colors in that group of dogs I just listed that would make it look like a Labrador cross, and you've got a range of sizes, and they just assort that way. The, you know, when... When Elaine Ostrander's group at NIH, and and it's been everybody, it's been the Broad Institute, it's been the amazing groups in Norway and Sweden, and the amazing groups at Animal Health Trust in Cambridge, huge numbers of people have been involved in the Dog Genome Project. And when they first did a series of purebred dogs, and, and you wanted a dog that was supposed to be typical for that breed and that you knew was a purebred dog based on its history and its pedigree. Not all of those dogs, they took five dogs of every breed. Not all of those dogs had identical sequences at the level at which they looked. In other words, there was considerable breed variability within those sequences for known dogs with state-of-the-art genotyping. You'd expect that because we're not all the same. And they hearken to their evolutionary history. So, you know, at some point, Australian Shepherds and Border Collies are more closely related to each other than either of them are to German Shepherds who are supposedly in their ancestral history. 
And you can see that in the mosaic that shows up in these beautiful comparative uh, genome sequences. And that's not the, and if we've got that degree of complexity in just the way things look, what makes you think you can map anything about the way something looks onto behavior? The, the thing that bothers me the most about this is we have excellent predictors of risk in bites. And they all have to do with human factors and the way humans interact with dogs. Well, and that's something I, I, I wanted to follow up on is the, the, the behavior angle of this. Um, and again, so I mean, I look at the dogs in my room right now with me. I've got a black lab who is goofy and silly and loves to retrieve and loves to swim. Um, you know, I've got a small terrier mix who is very toy driven, um, jumps and runs really fast. And I've got the lab shepherd hound mix who is very loyal to me and will guard me over other people. Um, so very typical behaviors of these breeds that you would expect. So, and, and I'm saying this partly as devil's advocate. Why can't we then say that pit bull type dogs, which have been allegedly bred to, to be aggressive or to attack, why can we say that those traits are not more common? Uh, so when I look at the lab, I have a general idea of what we're going to get. Except that there are a couple of real fallacies in all of that. First of all, pit bull dogs were not bred to be more aggressive. They um, they were bred to be family dogs. The American pit bull terrier was meant to be the quintessential American family dog. And the vast majority of them fall into that category. Loyal, tough, tough for kids. And I'll tell you that if you've got a sweet pit bull, they're going to be hard to beat for children because the kid can fall on the dog. You know, they're stocky dogs. You know, Amstaffs, Staffordshire Terriers, they're all, they're all everybody's favorite family dog wherever you are in the world simply because they're, they're tough dogs. You can fall on them. You can trip over them. They're short-coated. They're, they're relatively easy to care for. You don't have involved grooming. Um, they don't, you know, they're fairly low maintenance. They're smart. They do a lot of stuff. And unlike your lab, he doesn't need to go for a swim. And unlike my Australian shepherds, they don't need to get out and see everything in the world. And, you know, unlike half of the other dogs out there who have very specific needs, whether it's to run at great bursts or to be in a cool environment or to be in a hot environment or any of those things, these are these were bred to be basic family dogs. And that's all they were bred to be. They didn't, they didn't do anything else. The idea of them being aggressive comes from one set of decisions about dog fighting. And that's the minority of dogs. And even in those dogs, what people fail to realize is that dogs who fight often fail and failed dogs are killed. And that dogs who are good at fighting, by the time they get to that point, they're fighting for their lives. This is a tremendously cruel sport. It should be outlawed everywhere, and that outlawing should be enforced. And I only say that because we have a terrible time enforcing it effectively here. 
Um, it takes huge resources to do that, and most places don't have the resources to devote to that. And as a result of the way these dogs are handled in dog fighting, humans have to be able to reach in between the dogs, and if any dog bit any human, that dog's dead. So what you get when you rehabilitate these dogs, and I've been involved in a number of evaluations for people rehabilitating these fighting dogs, is you get dogs who have learned that when they get within a certain distance of another animal, it's kill or be killed, because that was the only way they survived. And those dogs tend to be actually quite fabulous with other people. So what we're probably seeing in many dogs, and it's not just pit bulls, who are aggressive in the situations that these dogs are, um, that people are concerned about. When dogs kill somebody, something's really, really wrong. And I always worry about neurodevelopmental problems with these dogs and experiences and um, how abused dogs are. I deal with a tremendous number of, of patients who have been mistreated or beaten or abused and bite as a result of that or who were starved to death as puppies um, and they made it through but they're reactive to everything and then they're put in situations where they're taunted or they don't get enough nutritional or behavioral support. Nobody's considering that aspect. So the myth aside that they were raised to be fighting dogs is not quite accurate here. Now, there are dogs who have been raised, certainly, to be fighting dogs, but all the things that I just said pertain. The other thing is, there are Labrador retrievers who hate water, and when people tell me that, oh, get a lab because they're nice and calm, I can show you hundreds of Labrador retrievers in my patient population who are anything but calm. In fact, they would drive you crazy. So there's behavioral heterogeneity in every breed. If we had selected aggressively for killer dogs, you know, you could probably get some dogs that were like that, the same way we have aggressively selected for some types of herding or some types of hunting. But even the, you've got to remember the, the history of the development of Mastiff breeds was for hunting with humans so that they were to help in the hunt to run down and help take down the game animal with a human. They weren't going to turn around and maul that human. And they weren't going to hunt the animals without the human. Well, and I guess that's, uh, you know, f uh, what, what's the current theory? At least 14,000 years, these animals have evolved alongside us and we have selectively oh, bred at them. At least. Um, now, I mean, we've got remains that have been found in anthropological situations suggesting that the, the dogs were, were truly domesticated that go back 33,000 years. And I think now every geneticist is in the at least 15,000 to 33,000 year camp. Um, so we probably co-evolved with dogs. And we know we've had breeds for thousands of years because you can see breeds in the pyramids. Yeah. Um and just one or two other ones sort of on that same vein. Um, 
uh, is genetics being fixed in an individual. So the example here is you take the best bred dog, under-socialize it, and it will likely be worse than a nervous dog that was given the right care. Okay, we don't actually know that. Um, we do know that you can take a genetically disadvantaged dog and give it excellent care and work with it and manage its environment and it can look pretty normal. You can take a normal dog, a non-genetically disadvantaged dog, and make its environment horrible and you can get a truck wreck. Um, but we don't know the extent to which you can push those boundaries because the studies actually haven't been done in dogs. And the place this becomes important is in selecting for working dogs. Because really, in a good working dog, and it doesn't matter whether it's a dog for somebody who's deaf or somebody who's blind or a dog who detects explosives or a dog who's going to be a military police dog. You want the best of the best for those dogs, and we still don't really know how to define best. What we do know is that there are some dogs who are supranormal. They are incredibly recoverable. You make mistakes in training them, they recover from it. You know, we've got dogs that can go overseas time after time again, and they don't develop PTSD. They go, they do five, six tours of duty, and they come back, and they seem fine. We've got some you send over for one tour of duty, and they fall apart, just like people. So, you know, I think that because we have breeds, we have thought that behavior was deterministic and that we could select for a specific suite of behaviors. When in fact, what we have are distributions of resiliency and recoverability and skills and um, how you react to damaging situations. And all of that factors into what happens. Dogs who attack and kill people don't do that de novo. They don't start out by attacking and killing people. Stuff happens in their brain. And without recourse to adequate diagnosis and understanding what appropriate, acceptable, and normal dog behavior is, no one's going to recognize those early changes. And we're going to continue to have risk. And banning a breed isn't going to help you. Um, and I've got two last questions and this, this has gone on much longer than I think either of us anticipated, but I'm okay with that myself. No, uh, I'm used to this going on. People <laughs> um, so I, one of the things, and I, I brought this up in my other interview with the Montreal SPCA and I'll, I'll summarize for you is we had a golden retriever when I was young, purebred, um, and bit everybody mildly, but me in the family. And then one day my mom tried to take a stone away from him. And he tore her hand apart over a hundred stitches within seconds. And I always hold that up to say, you know, when, when people talk about, well, you just don't know um, that, you know, pit bulls could cause this kind of damage and so on. I mean, this was a golden retriever. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's the dog that's not supposed to, it's, it's supposed to do the opposite of that. And it turns out he had a brain tumor. They did do a necropsy. Um, now how often, or can we know how often there may be some kind of underlying issue that has simply not been seen? I have to tell you, I think it's 
probably the most common situation. And it doesn't have to be a brain tumor. Brain tumors are actually fairly rare. I occasionally see them, you know, um, usually the neurologist has seen them and picks up on it. But I very rarely, I think I've had two brain tumors in 20 years where the dogs come in and doesn't really fit a profile for aggression that's that's purely behavioral. The onset was different and the change in the dog's behavior is profound and fits with uh, a lesion somewhere in the brain. More often than not, we see lesions in the brain that aren't the type that we pick up without functional imaging. In other words, maybe the receptors in the frontal lobe of your brain don't work too well in part of it. And if we give you medication, you'll grow new receptors or your neurons will will function at a different rate and you'll no longer have these problems. I mean, we know that can happen in dogs because somebody from the University of Ghent in Belgium has done the functional image study and can show you that when you give a dog citalopram, for example, which is an antidepressant, you can change the distribution of their serotonin receptors in their brain so that, you know, we can link those things to how, how they, how they exhibit their aggressions. I think that there are two big sorts that need to be done early. The first is, is the aggression warranted? And that's a question that almost no one ever wants to ask, but it's actually the first question I ask because I see dogs from a wide range of situations. You know, dogs get aggressive when they're scared, some of them. And uh, dogs get aggressive when there's a threat, whether or not they're scared. And I see more than my fair share of dogs who, when they bit somebody, the person deserved it. They'd earned it by then. They'd done that type of unconscionable stuff to the dog. Most dogs will not fall into that category, but it's really important that we realize that we live with a species with whom we probably co-evolved who does not have opposable thumbs and does not have verbal speech. And we expect that dog to understand everything we say, and we put in no amount of effort into understanding anything that dog says. I'm just going to interrupt it because that sounds a lot like me and my fiance. Um, she expects me to understand everything she says. <laughs> I'm not touching the men from right. Mars, women are from Venus. <laughs> but you know, you've got species here that yeah. that are so similar, people forget that we don't have exactly the same tools. They don't have hands. They use their mouths as hands. The slightest mistake is going to hurt. Okay, so so there's that. And then when you've taken away the ones where they've made a mistake and you've taken away the ones where people actually force the dog to grab them, now we've got dogs who have damage. And from my patient population in my research, I can tell you that the amount of damage done neurodevelopmentally from not having enough food, from not being in a nurturing environment, from not having a mother who wasn't starving, from not being protected and nurtured for the first few months of your life is astronomical. And if we really want to get to the bottom of this, those are the three places we need to look. Misunderstanding, inappropriate behaviors that induce these, and the neurodevelopmental problems that we're seeing. And uh, I guess on that, in the same note, on the other side of this coin is, 
And and I ask because uh, obviously we do a lot of wildlife work, and I ask this question of coyote incidents, bears, uh, even honeybees. Have you ever seen a case where a dog attacked, and I don't mean turned and nipped, but attacked aggressively without any provocation? I have seen. Uh, don't forget, I deal with truly pathological patients, so I have. When I see the most common form of aggression where people say there wasn't a warning, I see warning because I see that they're doing things to the dog that the dog has signaled to them is worrisome for the dog and the dog grabs them to stop them from doing it. But it could be a completely normal human behavior like petting the dog. And that dog can't handle that. So that's a reflection of the dog's pathology. But that dog has signaled that he doesn't want that to happen, that he's uncomfortable. And because it doesn't make sense to the human, and it's a normal human-dog interaction, the human needs help in understanding that. And as soon as they recognize that the dog has an anxiety disorder, the dog can't do this, they can work with the dog so that they don't trigger the behavior, and so that the dog actually learns how to be normal. So I see those. I don't tend to see um, just spontaneously, you will not see a normal dog, a dog that doesn't have underlying pathology, just spontaneously attack anything. It's risky to bite something. Um, it requires a lot of effort. It requires a commitment in a behavior. And once you're there, you're all in because now something's going to come back to you. No, no species would willingly do that and sustain that risk. Now, I have to say that I've seen the occasional pathology, and it's very hard to get me to recommend euthanasia. Um, but twice in my life, I have recommended euthanasia to dogs for dogs that were my patients because they were so atypical and so hard to read and so many things provoked them. And the people were absolutely ineffective at making sure they decreased the risk. And oddly enough, they were not breeds that people tend to think of as being aggressive. One was a Labrador Retriever. And I'm not sure I've ever seen a scarier dog in my life. And the other was a Rhodesian Ridgeback. And people tend to think of those as the sweetest dogs on the planet. They're just big. Yeah, they're both family dogs, very much. They're both family dogs. And yet, that's what this these very atypical pathologies, and both those dogs were put down because they were simply, they were simply too pathological to, to deal with. That has not been the case of any of the pit bulls that have come out of dogfighting cases in which um, I've been called in or the dogs have come to me. Um, all of those dogs, and many of them are dead now because they don't live forever, they all go on to do quite well. Um, one of the things that I think that we forget too is we forget how much circumstances make a difference. I made the mistake of serving on the board of our local shelter for six months. And it was a real education. Um, one of the things I noticed is that dogs responded to the way people responded to them. So that people 
would say, and it more often happened to anything that looked like a mastiff breed, oh, that dog might be at risk. So they would pause, and then the dog would get the feeling that they were uncertain. And then the people would act differently, and that would confirm the dog's suspicion that the people were uncertain. And if they're uncertain, they might be a risk. And then they would start to roughly handle these dogs. So within two weeks, they had taken very sweet dogs and made these dogs extremely suspicious of humans. Yeah, well, and that's, that, that makes me think again of our, our black lab, Baloo. Um, you know, you can to get him excited, you don't necessarily show him toys, you don't pet him. You look at him in the eye, and then if you smile, like he'll start wagging his tail. If you smile, he jumps up and runs over. Yeah. Like and, he, he has learned that subtlety. And it's a signal that you guys have reinforced in your interaction. Well, now consider a dog who's in an incredibly noisy place where he's locked up, where he can't back up because the run is only six feet, if it is six feet, where he can't get out of his interpersonal approach distance. And now you've got people who are making life and death decisions about these dogs, and they've got too many dogs. So, you know, they're looking and they're looking and they're acting uncertain, and then the dog moves towards them and scares them, and then they act in a different way, and now the dog feels threatened, and we all know how this is going to end up. Um, well, and of course, the other thing, too, is, you know, when you do go see a dog at a shelter, you're seeing a version of that dog, not necessarily who that dog is outside of that environment. And this is the wonderful thing about a paper that Amy Martyr and Gary Petronic and a couple of more pe- people out of Angel and Tufts published in 2013. You know, the big thing that everybody worries about in shelters is that you know, you're going to send a dog home, kids are going to be at home, kids have food, dogs are food magnets. Is the dog aggressive around food? So they do all these really strange tests that the dogs, I just, you know, have to believe that the dogs think that these tests are bizarre. But you've got a dog who may have been deprived of food or who's hungry, and you then chain the dog to the wall and try to take food away from it. And then if the dog reacts, you say, oh, this dog's aggressive to food he can't be adopted well amy martyr both critiqued the test and looked at it done in a more humane way and followed those dogs once they were adopted and as it turned out of course as most people suspected um the test is unreliable there there is uh there's a high false positive rate um for the test done in the shelter. The occasional dog who wasn't aggressive in the shelter will react over a piece of steak or London broil. But the weird thing was, it didn't matter to the people who had the dogs. They basically said, oh, that dog's aggressive around some food. Well, I won't feed the dog that food or I won't let him in the room then or I'll tell the kids to leave him alone when he's being fed. Mm, find a way to work around it. But it's it, there's a funny video you've probably seen of um, a woman eating chicken wings on a lawn chair and someone walks up to her with one of those fake hands they use in that test and starts pushing her in the face with it and she goes, stop it, stop, go away. And then they keep pushing her. Finally, she reaches out and slaps at the hand. They say, see, she's aggressive. Absolutely. Um, it's just, it's a funny sort of analogy. And, and you know, the, the example I always use to people is I say, you've got to realize what these tests do. This is like you sitting in a very fancy restaurant and your steak comes and you've just sliced into it. And the guy at the next table says, oh, that's good and takes it. Although I am vegan. So realistically, you know, I'd let him. Okay. So they slice the beautiful <laughs> avocado. Uh, no. Yeah. And that's, I think it's, it's, 
It's getting people to think about it in a different way. And that, that's what I want to end on with you is talking about as advocates, as you know, from the wide range, from me doing a podcast and writing blogs and dealing with the media through to the, the people on the ground in shelters and in Quebec and down to the people who just love dogs. How can we approach this and talk about it in a way that will be best for the dogs? Uh, in part because when I see people talk about this on either side of this debate, it very quickly unfolds and it gets very mean. And, you know, we say, well, I saw an episode of CSI, therefore I know X, Y, and Z. Um, or I went to school for forensic accounting, therefore I also know forensic anthropology. Um, how, how do we, do you think, talk about this in a way that makes it more consumable and maybe ends up with a better result? Well, there are a couple of things I think we can do. The first thing I think we, we need to, to do is acknowledge our ignorance, that we don't know everything about every situation, about every dog, about every aggressive event. And we need to acknowledge the limits of what genetics and assessments can tell us in the modern age. You know, it, I my assessments are only as good as my information. And for some people, we don't have very good information. And for others, we have great information. Um, this is one of the reasons people have worked so hard to have some type of, of evaluation test for dogs. And yet... I have to tell you that even in in working dogs where they have purposely bred for these, no test guarantees you a great working dog, even when you've had the chance to select for the genes. That immediately should tell you that there's more going on than just the test and just the genes. So that tells you the level of our ignorance. The second thing I think that we need to do is decide what we value here. And what I value is I would like people to have the best relationship possible that they could with dogs. I would like humans and dogs not to be injured by other dogs. And I put dogs in that too because interdog aggression is actually the most common reason that people, that adult humans are bitten by dogs. Their dogs are fighting and they reach in to separate them and they get bitten doing that. So not only is it terrible for their dogs, it's it's risky for them and they end up at the emergency room because they were bitten accidentally by one of their own dogs. That never shows up in the data. Um, so, you know, I want to minimize, that's that's the most common dog bite. We can mitigate that. The second most common dog bite, dog bites to children. And we now know the do the kid behaviors that are associated with those bites. And we also know that oversight from parents and caretakers actually has to be continuous to ensure that appropriate behaviors occur, in especially in certain age groups. The younger the child, the more the risk. So we can change that. And there are a series of dog bite prevention programs, all of which concentrate on very different classes of kids and all of which have benefits and none of which are perfect. Okay, so there are a few things we could mitigate right there, and that would take care of the vast majority of dog bites. The third thing I want to do is just make sure that we actually collect data that are meaningful and we begin to really understand these things. And for that to happen, 
we have got to have standardized ways of either recording dog bites, making sure that we get the dog bite and the injury information, making sure that we get the information from veterinarians as dogs develop. And that means that we basically need more scientists and more faculty positions to do these things so that we can not be investing in an artifact. Because every place that has banned a breed, the, the sordid thing that, that shows up but never manages to make it to CNN, is that every place that is banned a breed or a style of dog they end up with another breed or another style that does the same thing because you haven't changed the human behavior. You haven't educated anybody. You haven't collected the data. Until you do those things, we're not going to be able to move forward. And what we all want are better behaved dogs, better behaved humans, mitigated risk. We can mitigate the risk for the two main types of, of, of bites, those when you interrupt dogs who are fighting with each other in households or who know each other and are fighting with each other, and those um, that are involved in childhood bites because of lack of supervision or normal or inappropriate uh, behaviors on the parts of the children. That takes care of most everything, and that's not what we're focusing on. Then what we really need to do is decide whether we want something that's sustaining and really define what we want in a humane way for the people who love dogs and the dogs who depend on them, or if we want to grab a headline. I don't want to grab a headline. I want to make this world safer and more humane for the dogs and the people who love them because the dogs are completely dependent on us and breeds are artifacts of us. They're not what the dogs would choose to do. That's the show for this week, folks. I want to thank both our guests for joining us and all of you for tuning in to listen. Until next time, this is Michael Howie reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.